0: Welcome to Cynical Talk. This is a weekly roundup between your co-hosts, myself, Thomas Brancaso, and myself, George Shaft, where we will be exploring a variety of topics loosely related to MI Cynic, and just seeing what happens, it's going to be a more laid-back approach to the MI Cynic Standard episodes, and it is a chance for me and George to sound off a little bit more on our own hot takes on our own opinions and the beauty of conversation. Welcome back to another episode of MI Cynic. This is your co-host, Thomas Brancato. And I am George Shaft. Today, continuing in the vein of our last episode on Donald Trump, we thought it would be prudent to speak about, of course, the current US President, uh, Mr. Joe Biden. And, um, well, we've made plenty of references to Biden during our last cynical talk episode, and so we'd figured we'd delve more properly into the, um, the legacy, so to speak, and, of course, uh, Joe Biden's administration that, um, you know, we've still got two years more to go. Um, and the midterm elections coming up now will, will be a good sounding poll for how America feels about their president. But, um, well, Uh, George and I decided uh, we'd give off our opinion slightly before the midterms and see how things are coming along during Joe Biden's tenure. Well, Joe Biden, of course, Donald Trump has been the one that's been dominating the the news uh, headlines uh, lately, of course, with the Mar-a-Lago and secret documents drama that is unfolding. And we covered that into slightly more detail uh, in our last episode. But uh, one thing that uh, couldn't escape the attention of many observers is the stark differences between a Donald Trump that seems reanimated by this latest fiasco, and a Joe Biden that is increasingly slinking into the background, or remaining in the background, depending on how you look at it. Certainly, Joe Biden delivered his response to what is unfolding in the US with what he called the threats to democracy and how all Americans, in fact, all people across the world should repudiate violence in the name of democracy. And many pundits were keen to observe that this was uh, a thinly veiled assault and attack on Donald Trump's character himself and his handling of the unfolding secret document fiasco. Do you think Joe Biden has a point here or is it more politically?
1: I'm surprised that you called that speech you know, slinking into the background. The optics of it were, frankly, quite extraordinary for a president. You know, the building he was standing behind, illuminated red in the cover of the night. The American flag was behind him, draped, large. Armed U.S. Marines were standing in the background as if ready to take orders. It, it took exactly zero seconds for somebody to take, you know, images and clips of that speech and start to sort of Photoshop them as, uh, you know, the emperor from Star Wars giving a speech about about how he's going to restore security to the galaxy by destroying every every rebel scum in the universe. Uh, If that's linking into the background, then I I don't know what a fanfare is. Uh, yeah, as you said, the speech was, it was one of those speeches where you'd think maybe, I don't know, if it was just not given by a normal person, you'd just think, yeah, whatever. It's just you know, grandstanding call for unity. But it came from the president, and he specifically even said you know, his opposition party talked about how the Republican Party was driven off hatred. Uh, he He said that... He kept saying that the, basically that the Republican Party was wrong and used it by name in his capacity as president, which Donald Trump did a lot, but should generally still be considered not the norm. He said that there was something wrong with America's soul, uh, talking about the partisanship. As I said, optics were very much there.
0: Joe Biden's made this kind of appeal before for the, as he sees it, this this common humanity, this common values, this this common thing that unites Americans. And he very much ran on that platform and just about eked out a victory. It's what got him elected. Right. But I wonder if it's if that's what got him elected or simply a, a repudiation of Donald Trump, the Donald Trump's presidency. I mean, I wonder if. If Joe Biden had campaigned against, uh, let's say, a more conventional Republican opponent, he would have been anywhere close to victory. The problem there is that he, he appeals to this middle ground that I think, has disappeared for quite some time now, and it, it almost seems like he's, he's preaching to an empty, an empty room. and well, it, oh, it's not just me saying so. One of the both Joe Biden and Donald Trump made speeches in Pennsylvania. Uh, last week, as of recording this episode. And immediately there were some uh, videos that had gone viral um, just comparing and contrasting the differences in crowds between uh, the, the two senior politicians had attracted. Um, whereas uh, Donald Trump had packed rooms in the stadium, uh, Joe Biden um, you know, barely managed to attract uh, more than a handful. And I think that's a fair assessment i don't think it's just um you know something that republicans are using as a political slogan although i'm sure that they are but i think there's a there's i think joe biden has, has failed really to rally a base behind him more than just if you don't like donald trump and there's plenty of reasons not to vote for me as your last ticket out of this uh you know roller coaster uh ride and really, that, that's not so much healing America's polarisation as it is really just cementing it.
1: I would challenge the notion that there's a dichotomy between, not know, a repudiation of Trump and running on a ticket of unity, because that was what Trump was all about. He was all about splitting people. He was all about this notion that, you know, I'm the greatest person ever, and you know all the people who don't like me are enemies of the of the nation. And you know, praise be. So, in one sense, that's the the biggest repudiation you could possibly have of Donald Trump is to be that unity candidate, is to run and say I'm going to serve both sides. As for the implementation, as you said, it's it's a challenge. I mean, the United States faces a a problem when it comes to. Uh, it's polarization and the uh, divide between the two parties uh, that a lot of countries don't seem to get on the outside, which is that it's quite people-driven. You know, the the division, the the more extreme elements rise from the bottom up within American society. Uh, so Joe, people like Joe Biden. Uh, they taught this idea of, "Oh, let's have unity and let's work together." and then they go to Congress and they try and use that rhetoric you know on their fellow congressmen. But it's when it comes to the partisan affiliations and the you know the vigor that people support one side or the other, it's often people driven, that's often you know from the ground coming up. So he's talking to the wrong people, he's trying to go about healing in the wrong way.
0: And of course, on the, on the right hand, the Republican side of the spectrum, they would be keen to attack Biden as sort of this establishment figure. And to be fair, I mean, Biden has been around for a long time as a politician. He ran unsuccessfully for the presidential nomination in both 1988 and 2008, of course, being vice president to Obama's, uh, yeah. both of his terms in, in office. And so, it's almost like Biden is... is there's really a fundamental difference in how what Biden and Donald Trump and even the Democrat and Republican parties view America to begin with. I think Biden's view is, is more traditional for the United States. It's more, as you say, um, pragmatic, modernist approach of trying to use politics to do the maximum good possible to the most people possible. But it very much agrees that politicians should be the ones deciding this in Washington, DC. And it's very much pro-establishment, pro-business as well. And um, and as I said, it is, you know, politicians among themselves in Congress deciding and making life better for all of us. And the problem fundamentally with America is not so much the politicians or Washington, DC. It's not a systemic problem, but rather it's this divide. And the way to breach it is... Uh, you know, to remind Americans about all the causes that unite them and to find this common humanity again and the promise of America. And I think Biden very much believes in this. I would
1: challenge a couple of things there. One is is saying that people perceive him to be establishment. Well, if you've been a senator since the 1970s and been vice president and been speaker of the you know, was it, Speaker of the House, uh, and are currently the President of the United States, then who isn't the establishment? Uh, as for saying the that you know there's nothing wrong with the politicians themselves, eh, they certainly contribute. Uh, it's been fa- no they fa- a lot of people have found that running on you know, very provocative messages, running on on stoking the the flames. Gets you elected, gets you even elected to become president of the United States if your name is Donald Trump. There's also been, there's also a, fo- a more fundamental part, point of, of the whole systemic argument, which is that typically people sort of gravitate towards a center ground and tend to have much more consensus when things are going okay and when society works for people. You know, you look at you know, the great tu- eras, you know, when, in American history of consensus and of togetherness. And it's the 1950s, you know, when America just won the Second World War and they were 50% of the world's GDP. <laughs> the average, the average, the poorest person in in the state, you, the country you could joke, had a five bedroom house. You know, it was a time where life was pretty good for a lot of people in America, not the same as everyone, but for most people. But over time, the, of the needs of the constituents you know, in the US, and the kind of the priorities of the establishment of the government have quite clearly diverged. Look no further than a recent story uh, now, which is the water problems of Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, Jackson is the largest city. It's the capital of the state of Mississippi. And as of time of recording, you can't drink its water. It's, you know, the infrastructure supplying water, the tap water into the city uh, broke down and now everyone suffers the consequences. But of course, we found out very quickly after that things broke that turns out Politicians knew that there were problems there. The the plant hadn't been maintained in 20 years, and the engineers kept constantly flagging that this part and this part are breaking down and that they're trying to do, you know, band-aid fixes, but they need more investment and in, you know, political will to actually get it done. But spending Tens of millions of dollars on fixing a water treatment plant that you know will break in maybe 10, 20 years when you're out of office already. That doesn't get you immediate votes. There's no corporate donor who right. really desperately wants wants you to fix the the drinking water. So they don't. And the, you know the state leaders and the city leaders kind of kick the rat can down the road and they kept kicking it, kicking it, kicking it until it finally actually breaks.
0: And, this, and uh, this, this recovery fund is coming from the federal government, is yes,
1: it? uh it? Yes,
0: yep. Because uh, one, the, one question there is, you know, would a Democrat uh, administration necessarily bother with Mississippi that may be more or less guaranteed to vote uh, Republican uh, when the time comes?
1: Well, this is one of the things that Joe Biden makes a point of really emphasizing, that he is for all Americans and that he is going to fund infrastructure in the red states as well. Uh, earlier this year and last year, he made a huge effort with the Build Back Better uh, scheme, which involved a lot of trying to maintain infrastructure. Donald Trump ran on that, on that idea as well. Uh, you know, he kept talking about, oh, we need to see, fix our infrastructure. But he then didn't follow through with it.
0: Well, it's almost like you've got to preach to your camp and hope for the coin flip until you get to the office. And then, of course, you're president of all Americans. Um, but it, it does seem to me, you know, the picture that we're painting here, that, that Biden uh, very much uh, stuck in this almost past vision of America, in which red and blue didn't really matter. Your political affiliations were secondary to your citizenship as an American. And he very much ran on this strategy that he could convince, uh, that, let's say, the middle, the undecided, the swing voters and he won although really i don't know i think there could be an argument there to be made that he didn't win so much on the swing vote because of this strategy of appealing to the middle and and being a you know a middle of the road politician but rather because there was so much uh distaste and scorn and uh, of donald trump and so but which i'm not sure if is the case any longer because that was you know some time ago and people's memories are short and Um, You know, who knows what will happen next election, whether people uh, think uh, the same thing that they might have thought the first time around with Donald Trump will give him another chance, that he's certainly more entertaining than the other candidate. He makes a lot of uh, critiques and good points and et cetera, et cetera. So um, will Joe Biden be the last of the U.S. presidents to win on a ticket of appealing to swing voters and will further presidential races just really revolve around this completely polarised perspective of, um, you know, you hope to win as much support as you can from your own camp and just deny, forget, and ignore the, the other one because there's just no, no point as the middle ground dwindles further and further and further.
1: I really hope he isn't. Uh, it might be a delusion, but it's a very desirable delusion for someone who is the, so- no, the sovereign of, that, of the country. You know, if you're the executive who is making all of the decisions, you would expect, you would really want them to at least have it in their minds that they're doing it on behalf and for the benefit of everyone who lives in the country. Uh, the idea you're posting of you know, future presidents being only and very explicitly for their own, you know, camp and for no one else, and that they're going to go after, in fact, people in the other camp—that's. Uh, that sounds like a recipe for having your country fall
0: apart. Well, we've seen this with Donald Trump. I mean, even during his term in office, he quite vehemently attacked uh, the, the, the Democrat Party. And to be fair, I mean, looking at Joe Biden's last speech, uh, the Democrats are no strangers to this as well. I'm wondering if Biden is one of the last dinosaurs of the, of the previous generation in which a different America and it was possible to really have these middle ground politicians and with the closure of his administration, that will be the last of that old America. And what we saw with Donald Trump will be the future. It's an impossible to answer kind of a question, but it, it does really, um, it does pique my curiosity.
1: One, one part that's not impossible, though, is to ask yourself and to de- try and determine what made that old era be so consensus. What made that era produce these more centrist politicians, and maybe see what changed and try to do something about it. There are many factors that people blame. The internet, for example, uh, inherently drives people more and more towards extreme positions. But then there's also the economics, as I mentioned, and I think that's something that is often forgotten in this story. In many ways, Americans have been abandoned by their government uh, over the past quarter century or so, at least. You know, Look no further than Appalachia where, or where it used to be all the coal mining. And yes, yeah, switching to green and renewable energies was great, but then nothing was left behind. And now many of these areas have unemployment rates in the 40%. Look at places like Detroit where The where governments decided to do trade deals with the rest of the world. And the next thing you know, the world's center of car manufacturing has no car factories, rampant unemployment, crime, and the city's falling apart. Why wouldn't you, if you're a person living in these kinds of conditions, try and seek answers, even if they're more extreme, but answers that promise to try and do something about that? And why couldn't a future president do something to try and address that and make life better for everyone again?
0: But I, again, I think it's one of those things that the, the further we're polarised, the more impossible the prospect becomes of a president, even, even when you make the right call and you make the right decision in as far as uh, you know the best of possible options, which you know only God will know, right? But even considering, hypothesising, uh, Joe Biden got, you know, the big calls right in as far as X, Y, and Z. I think when we have such a polarized um, electoral pool of uh, citizenship, um, you're going to get scorned and reviled regardless, because it it really does become a question of, uh, you know, the the oft-called identity politics. And I think it has got to the stage now where no matter what a Democrat does, you're going to incite hatred from the Republican side. And no matter what a Republican president does, you're going to get that hatred from Democrats. And so really, you know, the, your question is, uh, you know, how did we get here and, and why did it seem to work before? Although really there, my question is, did it, did it work before? Or, or was it, you know, was America always really a divide, quite a divided country held together by a, a concept, uh, the American dream, if you'd like to call it that, which was always sort of the shaky... Um, far-flung, beautiful but almost impossible utopia, um, in which even in the best moments you think, well, there were clear winners and clear losers. And you know, during the, in the context of the '60s, of uh, you know, the US emerging as as the top superpower in the world, glued together by this mass immigration, glued together by the world's best economy, plenty of jobs to go around, high wages. Uh, education potential, um, decent amount of uh, equality among the board, let's say a middle class that was prosperous, um, et cetera, the list goes on and on. But even if you look at this so-called golden era of American politics, um, you know there were, there were red flags there as well. And I think there were, there were always multiple Americas, you know, depending on how back in history you want to go. Um, but this concept of one America served by one president and all of us so happy, I don't know if that's really the American history that I've read and the one that you can see on, in many different instances of things falling apart, not least of which the Civil War, which you might say, well, that was a long time ago. and Of course, it was, but I think you know, there are many places in the South and near the US that very proudly have the Confederate flags on. And then if you go back to, Cali- to sorry, to California, during the Gold rush and what came after that, and today, Silicon Valley, that's a very distinct culture that they have over there, which works in a lot of areas. But for a lot of people, homelessness as well, it's, it's not working out so well. And so you've got these fractures and these fault lines all across America. And the old concept that you could have this one non-divisive presidential figure to tie it all together, I think that's been challenged many times before. I think what's happening today is because of modern communications technology, um, the the idea, the American dream that was sold before to glue it all together is not as strong as it used to be. And perhaps what we're witnessing now is a fragmenting sort of back to this this base behavior of America, which, which is actually competing, contrasting quite different identities that want different things and compete directly with each other for them.
1: I mean, it's the elephant in the room when I was talking about the 1950s that, yes, it was America's sort of greatest era of prosperity you know, on the global stage. But I, I tap down around the fact that it was also the time when Jim Crow was in full effect. In dozens of states, black people weren't allowed to use the same bathrooms as white people at the same time. There were clear, very clearly winners and losers involved in that. And I'd say that's the same for all societies. It's, you know, on a very fundamental level, that's what society is, it's, or politics is. It's deciding who makes you know, who's making the decisions and who benefits from it. And that's a, that's a question that's always going to change over time, and there's always going to be people who lose on the outside of it. Where I would challenge, though is focusing a lot on the fact that yes, there are, of course the United States is thousands of kilometers wide. it's got many, many different groups within it. Uh, but challenging the, I would challenge this idea that uh, just because there are these differences doesn't mean that you know, unity is impossible or that there will always there will always be you know no path that could benefit a large majority. Because that's very much achievable, uh, I I think. Look no further than when you poll people on uh, issues, but then take out the names. Uh, A classic one I found is if you ask Americans, uh, do you support Joe Biden's plan to give funding and arms to Ukraine? about 52% of Americans say they support it. But if you just say, do you support sending funding and arms to Ukraine without Joe Biden's name, it shoots up to about 75%. Uh, another one, student loan forgiveness. Uh, this has been a flagship announcement by Joe Biden in recent weeks. Uh, when you asked people, uh, do you agree with Joe Biden's student loan forgiveness uh, policy? As Breitbart has done uh, surprise, only about 44 percent of Americans say they support it. When you take out his name, though, that number shoots up to 64 uh, percent. And it's one of those policies that does really benefit so, you know, people, the recipients. I know people who have studied in the United States and you know do have big student loan debts and. They're now telling me about how they're going to, as soon as it comes online, as soon as they're able to, they're going to be able to get tens of thousands of dollars of their debt forgiven, which is a good thing, I'd I'd argue, not just for individual prosperity, but also for societal unity, because as I said, when most people are doing well, people tend to unite more in countries. Yes. Unless, you go by, unless you go by the opposite extreme of you know, a war, but
0: I don't think that's the right approach. And, you know, well, public spending is always a divisive um, topic, right? Because you, you then have the Republican side, which counters there that, you know, government should be kept small because it is inherently, uh, if not lazy or inefficient, then downright corrupt. Um, and, and this is, you know, this is a belief structure, which is hard to counter with, let's say, hard evidence one way or another, um, even if you can somehow, you know, concoct the uh, evidence, let's say, of the subject. But even if you could, I think it really comes down to the um, to the belief that one has about the nature of man, and in which I would argue that the Republican side maybe has a more Hobbesian approach that, uh, you know, people are fundamentally selfish and that the world or life is about survival this is despite the more christian underpinning of the republican policy um whereas the democrats have more of a lock approach anyway this is this is how it helped me to understand some of the fundamental differences and so that's why you have republicans saying well government should be controlled should be there should be checks and balances that government should be kept small precisely to avoid that and to let free enterprise and the market sort of fill in the gaps and then you have the criticisms of how that might work or might not. But this is where you might have some opponents to this idea that, uh, you know, uh, student debt should be forgiven or um, should be cancelled or whatever it is. Because inevitably the money has to come from somewhere, right? I mean, this is often something that's forgotten in the debate. There's no free money. It's, it's got to come from somewhere. And often that means from taxpayers. And so the Republicans, some of which, especially the wealthier ones, might think, hey, you know, I don't want to pay more taxes so that uh, liberal arts students get to study, you know, whatever, sociology for four years. Um, And they might argue it in a whole bunch of different ways. But I think what it comes down to is the fact that Biden um, has ran on the platform and maintained this idea that he wishes to be the American president that healed that dark, gloomy, divisive period of Donald Trump. Because fundamentally, Joe Biden believes that these fault lines are created by people like Donald Trump, politicians from up top, rather than perhaps the way that I see it more, increasingly more, that these are fault lines in America have always been there. And we're always going to surface at one point or another. And that Donald Trump is simply the manifestation of that. But because he's so committed to this concept of a united America and build better, and you know we'll all get out of this together, and we're going to forget those horrible four years and go back to this golden era of the 50s, something like that, Um, then very much he thinks, well, of course, student debt uh, is a big problem and we should The government's purpose, why we're here in the first place, is to alleviate some of the problems that people face. And he may not understand that in trying to do um, these kind of policies, of big government policies with big government spending, he might actually be contributing even more to this polarization that we're seeing in America.
1: Problem with that is, uh, ironically, the very, uh, the very person that America spent a lot of time opposing, which is uh, Karl Marx comes useful here, because you say, oh, Republicans are going to uh, oppose these things. No, they don't. Uh, when you Again, when you take out Joe Biden's name from various policies, majorities of Republicans support both these things. About 55% of Republicans support the student loan forgiveness. And it's about 85% support the uh, giving money and arms to Ukraine. Uh, again, when you take Joe Biden's name out of it, what, what is a better barometer for things like that is class. Because as you said, richer people don't want to pay for things that don't directly benefit them. And America's certainly seen a huge rise in inequality. It's got a record number of billionaires nowadays, record numbers of millionaires, but then also record record numbers of homeless people. And those very, very wealthy people support and fund politicians in their campaign promises. Joe Biden had to get elected with what, something like, two billion dollars or something like that to get himself elected and almost all of that was in donations from very very rich individuals or corporations so sitting and going oh well you know it's all well and good keep trying to heal america's divide with you know public spending uh, but you know the republican party isn't going to like it it's like no it's That's not quite true. Infrastructure, again, enjoys a very large majority of Republicans support things like fixing roads. Because of course you would. What normal person doesn't doesn't support fixing roads and fixing waterways? The answer is very, very wealthy people who benefit from these things not being fixed up, who benefit maybe because they're the owners and they just kind of collect rent offer utility. And those are the people who then spend money on politicians, who then don't listen to the needs of people, which then drives the people you know, into more and more extreme camps, as well as making it harder and harder to imagine an America that is united you know, behind some kind of common vision.
0: I think ultimately, you know, the the entire democratic system that has been in place since American independence resists this notion of complete harmony and and unity, at least in a political sense. I mean, the whole thing is, the whole point of democracy and as well, parliamentary democracy rests on the idea of there at least being two parties, which fundamentally are meant to, if not oppose, then certainly debate one another. So... um, you know, perhaps the, the context here is not so much, how can Joe Biden, you know, bring all the Republicans and Democrats into some kind of new one-party state? That's not the point. There should be a healthy division. That's a fundamental part of democracy. The problem is when uh, the camps become not only polarized, but when vitriol comes into the equation and when hatred starts to emanate, and as Joe Biden said to his credit, violence, uh, then that is when it's, it's out, of, out of order and it's not necessarily productive or helpful uh, to anyone, really. And I, 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 I would could agree- not
1: disagree more uh, with your notion that oh, America was fundamentally set up, you know, to have parties. The American Constitution is very, very clearly made on a principle of people working together. Uh, The founding fathers in the Federalist Papers and in other writings were very openly scornful of political parties. The very fundamental basis of the state is this idea of the separation of powers. Uh, Basically, uh, the legislature, which is Congress, uh, the the executive, which is the president, and the Supreme Court, which is the judiciary, uh, have different powers and have different jurisdictions over different realms. And the very... concept that was imagined by the the founders was that these three branches would have to work together in order to get policy done. Because if they were all very entrenched and very divided into parties, then one faction would control one branch and another faction control the other branch, and there would be gridlock, which is what we have been seeing recently. It's in fact the exact opposite. The American constitution, the American system was made on the assumption of people working together.
0: Did they imagine sort of the Senate and the Congress seats being filled in by independence, essentially? Uh,
1: that was their original notion uh, that basically there would be no political parties, but it would be, you know, independence. That fell apart at the first election and you end up seeing the rise of, you know, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, but the notion of both sides still need to work together was still incredibly ingrained and was a very consistent thing for most of American history. Hell, the original draft of the Constitution and the original way it worked for the first 100 years or so was that the winner of the presidential election would become the president, and the runner-up would be the vice president. How much more, we're, we're all about unity, can you possibly get?
0: A couple of points on that, uh, but uh, just to close off our discussion on, on party here, I would say that, um, uh, you know, it's hard to find a country these days that doesn't have political parties. So I think they've just standardized it across the entire world as a default. You have to have it. Um not every country though will have such um, toxic relationship between the parties. I mean, here in the UK, while certainly relations between the Tories and the Labour are, are not what they used to be, it's nowhere near the level of tribalism you see in American and identification and the rest of it, certainly not in Canada, and uh, of course in many other places across the world. So I do think that even if political parties, you could say, do foster an environment of, uh, of personal identification, political politicking, tribalism, and the rest of it, it doesn't necessarily have to imply that things get as bad as they are now in the US. So I don't think it's enough just to blame the political party system. There's, there's something else that needs to be added to that equation. Of course, the electoral system. But and I'm sure that if we were to ask Joe Biden if he would come along to this podcast, he would say, well, the chief architect here that you should be looking at is Donald Trump. And you know, he might have a point there. I also think there's there's something uniquely American that has been concocting this, what we're seeing today, and and it's been brewing for a while now. It's just never been addressed properly, and maybe it's not possible to be addressed properly because of X, Y, and Z factors. But you mentioned the vice president. I did want to touch on this for for a minute here, uh, George, because I remember um, Joe Biden's, when he was elected, of course, it was with his running mate, Kamala Harris, who is now vice president of the US. And part of the the, the rumor mill back then uh, was that uh, there was a fear that because of Joe Biden's age, he is the oldest president uh, to ever be elected, um, that Kamala Harris would actually have more of that day-to-day operation and sort of be the, the, the president in everything but name. Well, I don't think that's necessarily panned out to be the case, but I'd very much like to hear your opinion on, on Kamala Harris and what kind of legacy she might expect at the end of the of this administration.
1: So Joe Biden looks like looks like he's set on at least serving out his term. So if Kamala Harris wants to become president, you know, the the notion of oh she's gonna become president by stealth uh doesn't seem to be panning out. She'd have to run in 2024 in order to, to get it. Uh as for what kind of legacy, well, that depends if she wins the presidency in 2024, doesn't it? Uh, or if she can even run for presidency, maybe Joe Biden might run for a second term. We don't know this yet. Uh, and then, the, and then after that, the legacy is her choosing. Uh, she certainly has a legacy uh, as the California prosecutor, uh, infamously prosecuting people who were proven innocent even during the trial. Yet she kept going on with the prosecution. Uh, which is not that great a legacy. But hey, if you care about the optics, first black woman as uh,
0: vice president. So do you reckon it will either be Joe Biden or Kamala Harris against most likely Donald Trump in twenty twenty four?
1: Probably most likely. Though if Joe Biden steps down, there will still be the primary process and there might be an unexpected challenge that uproots that, you know, that kind of dynastic
0: passing of power. And do you think his age is of any concern? I mean, it it was a couple of years ago. Will it be even more of a concern in 2024? He will be um, 81 years old, if I'm not mistaken.
1: He is already the oldest president in US history. Uh, And it was an issue that was openly discussed many, many times during the election. Uh, The only thing that had that took the sting out of it, was the fact that the previous oldest president in US history was Donald Trump. I imagine if the Republicans ran with someone younger, you know, someone more evidently very vigorous, that it will absolutely be a very big uh, discussion point, without a shadow of a doubt.
0: And I think one of the most, the more difficult, I mean, Joe Biden, one way or another, if he does choose to stand, we'll have to defend uh, as an incumbent his years in office. And well, we'll get into specific policy. We'll continue uh, discussing his specific policy in a moment. But I think this will be an uphill battle for him, not only because of his age uh, and the lack of dynamism that we've seen, but also because, in, in a way, uh, Biden's presidency so far seems to have lived in the shadow of Donald Trump's raucous four years in office. There's been a considerable lack of drama, which I'm sure has been pleasing to many. Um, But it's also, might I suggest, been quite a boring, safe presidency that's achieved relatively little um, compared to other presidents before him that have had a much more lasting impact. Even whilst they were in office cultivating a legacy, Reagan comes to mind. Will Joe Biden, do you think it will be an uphill battle for him as a fragile old man uh, saying you should vote for me again, when uh, Donald Trump has really uh, stolen the spotlight from him, even without being president?
1: That's probably why Joe Biden has, from the start, said that he would only ever be a one-term president. He's been quite clear about the fact that he doesn't think he'd be able to hack a second term. Uh, As for whether it's been a boring presidency, well, there's been Plenty of excitement, that's for sure. You know, grandstanding speeches, student loan forgiveness, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, build back better. Joe Biden, however, has encountered a, you know, fundamentally the thing that the founders feared the most when I was talking about the separation of powers. The different branches of the government are controlled by different factions. He, Joe Biden is the president, You know, fantastic. So he has one branch. But the Supreme Court is majority conservative. And, you know, this year it ruled the, you know, it did the landmark ruling of overturning Roe v. Wade and punting the issue of abortion back to the states. You know, something that hadn't been the case since the 1970s. And, you know, it's been a hugely divisive issue now in the states where suddenly people woke up to the fact that their rights were suddenly being taken away. And whereas others were suddenly hailing the, hailing the day that they could finally do God's work again. And then when you look to Congress, it again was, was divided. The, the House was majority Democrat for Joe Biden's first two years of office so far. And so they've generally been on board of his legislative program, but the Senate has been exactly split 50-50, which normally, you'd, you know, on paper, you'd think that's okay, because the vice president casts the deciding vote when it is a 50-50. But then the problem comes in with the fact that there are different factions within the Democratic Party, that you know, both parties are broad, tents, and infamously two senators, uh, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin have been really making a name for themselves for obstructing and for going, well, we're in the same party, but this rule, this law that you've just proposed, uh, my donors tell me is bad for them, so I'm going to oppose it. And so you have to remember there's this context where Joe Biden might have achieved less than you'd imagine, but then you need to remember everything he has achieved has been achieved in the exact opposite of conditions that the founding fathers envisioned as being the ideal operating of the US government. And that, that makes each of the achievements that has been accomplished that little bit more impressive.
0: Well, I would, I would throw caution to the wind when discussing Afghanistan, because I, I don't know if that's something that Biden would be able to effectively use as some kind of campaigning trick, um, considering how things went there. Um, there was concern, to say the least, that pulling out of Afghanistan early could lead to catastrophic outcome, which of course- Define early. (laughs) Well, I mean, it was a hasty, uh, raucous withdrawal, almost overnight, um, leaving not only Afghanistan out in the cold, but many here in the UK in counterterrorism circles felt that its most important ally, the United States, have left them essentially with their pants uh, caught down, or uh, let's say, caught with their pants down. Um, In in which case, uh, almost unilaterally, the entire alliance had to withdraw with the US as they couldn't feasibly maintain a presence there without American support. And effectively now, uh, in what can only be described as a huge embarrassment for the United States, um, the Taliban rules once again in Afghanistan after crumbling the um, the democratic uh, regime that was there in a matter of, of days, um, and so I'm not necessarily sure that's um, that that's something that Joe Biden would would let's say that I'm sure he would look back on that as as a as a failure and as a, something that he wishes if he could turn back time would would have called uh, different decisions then, and um, it's certainly I would cannot see it the American actions, uh, specifically Joe Biden's administration's actions in Afghanistan as anything except a a failure, not only to American foreign policy in the area, but to the people of Afghanistan themselves who must bear the brunt of of this new Taliban regime lording over them. I mean, we've already seen, uh, we'll discuss this in another episode, uh, demonstrations by women in the streets of Afghanistan. Uh, Never mind Uh, proclaiming for for women's rights, uh, which they used to enjoy marginally more uh, just a few years ago, uh, for food and for work. Uh, It's uh, a catastrophic situation in Afghanistan. And and my personal position there is that I think Joe Biden um, jumped the gun too early. And I would extend that criticism to Iraq as well. He was vice president in, in 2011 when the decision was made to withdraw from Iraq. If anything, Joe Biden seems to be the president of hasty withdrawals from previous Republican wars.
1: Joe Biden himself, when asked about it, I would agree that he's not going to run on that as policy, but he does still maintain it was the right thing to do. He points out that it was the longest war in American history. And if your country, no, if your, you know, your ally, your proxy can't defend themselves after 20 years of support, then... How long? What is the timeline? You can always say, you know, oh yeah, it's a, it was a hasty withdrawal and yeah, you know, maybe we should have been around longer, but how long is long enough? If 20 years, you know, the longest war in American history isn't long enough, then what is? We'll point out though, it was, that was one item of a list.
0: I think it was it, you know it, it was with Afghanistan in particular I think it, a full withdrawal under any conditions would have been uh, would not have ended well it's a country that needs perpetual lifetime uh, support um because and, and that was a I mean that should have been considered before going in there to begin yeah.
1: with why should the american taxpayer pay to indefinitely keep a country you know going that well, clearly don't want.
0: Right. And, and, and of course, and you've got, you've got a good point there. I think inevitably there we run into this issue of, of the problem of four-year terms in which you might have a Republican president coming in, declaring a war without perhaps having the foresight to say, okay, well, you know, is it really a good idea to be 20 plus years in a war that we neither can win, nor there's anything really that valuable to win to begin with? Uh, other than this ill-defined concept of we send boots on the ground and to stop terrorism, which is not exactly the case. But anyway, the point I'm making is you have one Republican president come in, and then 20 years later, you have a Democrat president saying, okay, now we're going to pull out. And this is, you know, I think a, a fair criticism of the, the four-year terms in general. Um, but beyond that, I think if the decision was made to to sort of go into and install a democratic regime in, in a foreign part of the world, um, then you do have a commitment there uh, only, by, only by manner of the fact that uh, whether you like it or not, whether it was a Republican president or not, it was still the USA that decided to go into Afghanistan to in the first place. And so that creates a commitment. And if not, it, it, at the very least, to the people, uh, the Afghanistani people that uh, were part of that effort, who sadly have been blindsided and and left out to rot um, as they were not sort of welcomed back as refugees uh, um, back to the the West or to the US, the UK, and et cetera. So I think there was a lot of learning lessons uh, there to begin with, but I do agree with you that uh, at the same time, why should President Joe Biden uh, bear the full brunt of the decisions made by a president beforehand? It's complicated, and on the one hand, I think you you do have the legacy of, of a country and other people, other presidents' previous mistakes, whether you like them or not, you've got to fix them up, as President Obama had to do with the recession. Uh, but then on the other hand, you've got to have a fresh and clean start somewhere. Regardless, I think we can both agree, if Joe Biden does a re-election campaign, I don't think uh, Afghanistan will. It might be so much of a thorny issue that it's best left unspoken which I assume most Americans would just uh, kind of fondly agree with. Let's just forget that whole thing and talk about something else.
1: Yeah, I think like, I would agree with that one.
0: So what do you think the likelihood is that Joe Biden will be running for uh, a next election? And do I, you think he'd win against Donald Trump? As I said, I don't think he's
1: going to run for the next
0: election. Uh,
1: he's been visibly slowing down and he does admit that and has said, been quite clear that he doesn't want to run for another uh, term. So I don't think he's going to run for another term. Would he be able to win against Donald Trump? Hard to say. Uh, Donald Trump's uh, support base is very rabid and very firm, but has always been a minority of the American public. And so ultimately, it would end up becoming a contest of turnout.
0: And I think what would, uh, I mean, we've spoken about this uh, a bit during our previous conversation, but I do think one thing that might benefit Donald Trump is the short-term memory and um, the concept that uh, many people might simply have forgotten, and especially young voters, if they can be bothered to turn up to vote. Um, And unfortunately, one criticism that I think can be levied is how sometimes dull and a bit boring Joe Biden's presidency has been. And so Donald Trump might use that Um, to create this uh, circus ticket, which seemed to have worked well for him during his last election. So, sorry, it's during the the first election which he he won the presidency. So we'll have to see how that pans out. But one thing I will say, a a parting thought here, is that I do kind of wish that had Joe Biden won the presidency in his younger years, because he's been a politician for so long, we might have seen a dynamism um, and perhaps an imagination, uh, that sadly, I think, because due mostly to his his older age, we have not been able to see in this last two years.
1: And a boring presidency involving nine percent inflation, as I've said a couple times now in this call. Economics is a very is a very important thing. Fun fact: uh, I'm sure that there's more than one person out there who would really like to punish Joe Biden for the fact that the economics during his term have been very bad for most people but that's been a global affair
0: yes but i certainly agree with you that um, and i'm sure biden would say this himself uh, you know he's not been able to um, heal and mend america's uh, political and economic wounds as much as he, he would have liked to and there's many you know the, the gridlock you've mentioned before is certainly a, a chief obstacle there that is difficult for any president to overcome regardless of their age and it's a sign of the times I think my my final thoughts on on Joe Biden and his his years so far as president it's, it's a bit of a mixed bag. I do I do respect his his hark back to this era of uh, America you know the golden era when it was united when there was a common vision when the dream was possible for every hardworking talented individual. I think he well he personally remembers those days, doesn't he? And he very much comes from that camp. And I do respect that because I think it's a a worthwhile vision. Um, But sadly, I think he'll be remembered in history. And I hope I'm wrong, but I think he'll be remembered as history as, as a president of a divided America. As much as he didn't want to partake in that or descend into that and repudiated that and tried hard to avert that, I think he'll ultimately be unsuccessful in that attempt and that he'll be remembered as this bizarre stopgap during Donald Trump's terms. You know, this this visible sign of fear and indecision as America kind of fully embraces or falls into a a new polarized century. But we'll see what what history turns out, But I'm keen to hear your parting thoughts on Joe Biden.
1: I can always respect someone who tries to heal, you know, who tries to make life... You know, better. Uh, and certainly, he's tried quite hard. You know, the Build Back Better uh, bill, which he really was putting himself on the map for to make happen, involves a lot of things that were very popular and very essential, such as funding for infrastructure, like water treatment plants, like the one that just recently broke down And now a city of hundreds of thousands of people in the US don't have clean drinking water in Jackson, Mississippi. So from that point of view, I do agree that I can respect someone who at least tries. uh, But in politics, trying is not usually enough. You need to have success. You need to have, you know, accomplishments. And there again, Joe Biden has some some accomplishments that are worthy of praise. You know, the student loan debt forgiveness program, for example, is looking set to make the lives of huge numbers of people substantially better. But it's, you know, they're little bright, they're little stars on the night sky, which is mostly darkness. He's been president in an era of a pandemic, of war in Europe, of a global supply chain collapse. Of the climate catastrophe coming home to roost, you know, been huge wildfires uh, raging across especially the southwest of the US. And that's hard for anybody to deal with, much less a man who's very much showing his age and very much focused on trying to return to life as it was
0: a long time ago. The unlikely unsung hero... And, uh, you know, if we were to make a film version of the events these days, it's almost as if America is sort of shrugging off its elders. It's that's, that ancient wisdom and the way things used to be. And, uh, well, one can only brace for what is to come. But before we close out, George, the million dollar question, and actually it applies to yourself because, of course, you you are an American citizen, if I'm not mistaken. I am, yes. Would you vote for Joe Biden should he stand for the next election?
1: depends on depends on who the competition is uh i as of recently i actually now can vote i made the effort to register myself uh but i would be voting in the state of california which is a safe state so my vote wouldn't doesn't actually matter that much on an objective basis uh so i'd probably just end up voting third party for the most part
0: well then that uh, will conclude a, uh, a great discussion on uh, Joe Biden. Thank you so much, George, for joining me. I am Thomas Brancato, your co-host, and signing off. Goodbye. And that wraps up this week's Cynical Talk episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you could share this with your family and friends. If you haven't, let us know why on our website at www.micynic.com or over at Facebook linkedin youtube and more you can find us over at spotify apple google podcasts stitcher and wherever else you find your podcasts this is your co-host thomas Boncasso, and i hope you'll be joining us next week for our next episode of cynical talk until then take care stay safe and stay cynical